So I'm going to talk a little bit about the surgical management of perianal Crohn's now, and I'm going to do it really quickly. Um, Sue's already covered some of the things that we want to talk about, which is really helpful. Um, but I'm going to focus in on the surgical management, and I'm going to try and give you a slightly different flavour for how we might think about these diseases. And those of you who were here at the IBDMDT yesterday might recognise a similar slight dichotomy appearing as we talk, which hopefully we can eradicate with MDTs and joint clinics. This is the um, St. Mark's algorithm for perianal Crohn's disease. It's really complicated. It's very much based on the ECHO algorithm with a couple of bits added and taken out. So you'll recognise it um, from that point of view. But it's mostly, these algorithms in my view are mostly a list of options. When actually uh, a more useful algorithm is to think about how we actually manage these patients. And this is something I think you'll recognise much more easily. And of course from a surgical point of view, it starts with drainage of any collection, seat on insertion to try and get the patient free of any perianal sepsis or abscess or infection. And then we want to start top-down aggressive medical treatment with combined immunomodulator and anti-TNF agents plus minus antibiotics, exactly as Sue has just told us. And then if response is lost, we need to optimise that medical treatment. We might well start by undertaking a scan, asking a surgeon to see the patient so that they can identify if there's any abscess which needs draining, which is both being encouraged by the um, anti-TNF agents and also sucking all the anti-inflammatory power out of the drugs that we're giving into that abscess. And also thinking about the other medical ways to optimise treatment with checking antibodies and levels and so on, which I'm not going to start to talk about because I'll make myself look like an idiot in no time at all. And thanks, by the way, Asha, for that photo earlier, which did the job all on its own. And then, of course... Um, this is where we might slightly take a different view. Uh, we should be looking towards reparative surgery for these patients, and it won't be suitable for all of them. But Sue's beautifully described the palliative treatment of perianal Crohn's disease. Keep giving them the drug. If you don't, the fistula returns, the symptoms continue, and if you keep treating them, you'll keep their symptoms under wraps. And that's what we've been doing. And we should do better than that. We should be trying to close these fistulas if we can, and medical treatment doesn't really manage that. So if we can get the patient into a situation where both the fistula and their perineum are sufficiently friendly that we can consider a reparative treatment, I think we should be doing that. We do it very little in this country. It's a little bit more, I think, prevalent in Europe, but even there, probably not enough. And all the time we should be thinking about, and in my view, talking about with the patients, this concept of defunctioning and ablative surgery. It's usually in my first consultation with these patients, at least the second. Not because they will all need a stoma or proctectomy, although 10 to 20% of them probably will over the career of their Crohn's disease that they have, but because they have to understand that it is a discussion that is on the table from the word go. They can always bring it up. They don't have to be frightened to do so. And because if we aren't talking about this kind of surgery from the beginning, then they get a clear message that it represents failure. Their failure, our failure, a bad outcome, a bad option, which we only come to as a last resort. And that is exactly the wrong message, in my view, to send to patients, particularly that small group for whom nothing else will improve their quality of life. And we all will have seen patients in our clinics who return aged 40 after their proctectomy and say, that, that's great, I feel so much better, I only wish we'd done this 10 years ago because I'd have a meaningful career and a partner and kids, and I've missed out on those things because I didn't move to this option early enough. And clearly that's not everybody, but it is a small and important group. But for most people, this is the answer, isn't it? They'll be cycling around that central part of the algorithm time and again. 
So what are those reparative surgical options? Well, the traditional workhorses are lift and advancement flap, and they've both been uh, meta-analysed um, in a paper that we recently produced with the AMC, and I commend it to you, although the outcomes in that suggest success rates of 70% for lift and advancement flap in Crohn's disease. I, I still think that those are optimistic, and I think in the real world we, we can only really hope for success rates with both of these operations of around 50%, maybe even less, in the right patients. And of course, there are lots of patients whose fistula or whose perineum is simply too hostile to undertake a lift or an advancement flap procedure. None of us is going to try and do an advancement flap here, right? I think we can all agree on that with this florid perianal disease. This perineum is hostile. It doesn't want the fistula to heal. It's going to fight against everything we do until we get that perineum under control if we can. So a few moments just to talk about stem cells and where they might fit into all of this. One advantage stem cells might have for us is that they are suitable for more complex tracts with a couple of internal openings and three external openings in the ADMIRE study. You don't rely on surgical closure in terms of a lift or an advancement flap type procedure, so you can have a more complex fistula. This is Nick Powell, who has an enormous brain, and in particular with regards to stem cells. And he very kindly sent me two sets of slides, one for use if gastroenterologists are in the audience and one if they're surgeons. This is the surgical set. It's the one that I understand. And broadly speaking, the idea of stem cells is that they have two central actions. And one of them is anti-inflammatory, and the other is, of course, related to wound healing, to helping the fistula to close, both through the secretion of paracrine growth factors, but also through cell differentiation. And the idea is to tip that balance, make the perineum less hostile. At the moment, it's pro-inflammatory, it's anti-wound repair, and we want to tip it in the opposite direction so that the fistula wants to heal when we're doing an operation for it. And you'll all know about the ADMIRE study, a double-blind randomised uh, trial, multi-centre, international study, 200 patients in it. All the patients had curatage and aceton insertion, and three weeks later, further curatage and closure of the internal opening, whichever arm they were in. And then the treatment arm patients had 120 million stem cells in addition. So that was the only difference between the two. So it's a very aggressive placebo, if you want to describe it that way. Of course, it's a comparator rather than a placebo. And there's a few interesting points to, to point out about this study. And the first one is about the endpoint. And Sue told us about the medical endpoint, the, the endpoints used in the medical trial, which is purely clinical, doesn't really understand whether the fistula is healing at all, doesn't try to. It just looks for closure of the external opening, which we all know is inadequate in understanding what's happening to a fistula. And admire, in the ADMIRE study, they went a step further and tried to use radiological assessment to see whether there was deep tissue healing. Now, we might all agree that this radiological definition of healing is inadequate. A 1.5 centimetre abscess is okay, fistula healed, but a 2 centimetre abscess is not. Clearly, that's not the right answer. Uh, but it is perhaps a step in the right direction to start to think about using radiological assessment as well as clinical assessment uh, to see whether or not these things are healing. And importantly, it's asking that question, right? It's not saying, how's the patient doing, although that is, of course, important. It's asking, are the stem cells meaning that we're changing the paradigm so that we now have a way to close fistulas, make them heal properly? That's the key question, I think, for this study. This is what they showed. A third of patients in the aggressive comparator arm closed their fistulas according to that combined remission um, uh, definition. And then a half of patients, a 15% uplift, did so with stem cells. And that was maintained at a year, although in a slightly smaller group of patients. 
So our view about these data is that they're early, they're too small, and we need longer-term uh, data to find out really whether this is actually having an impact on fistulas in the long term, and crucially, whether or not the fistulas are healing. So the endpoint's still too weak. There's insufficient long-term data. You can make the argument that the delta is inadequate. I actually don't think that's true. I think if you heal any fistulas with this technique, then it's changing everything, and so that's really important. It will then be a question of building on what we achieve. And, of course, there are all the questions about cost. It's enormous, 40 to 50 grand for one treatment. And the logistics, the stem cells come out of the factory in Madrid, and 48 hours later they have to be in the patient and have been at room temperature the whole time. But that's okay. We've got those logistics ironed out. We've done it 10 times in London. They've done it 10 times in Sheffield. So it's doable in this country. But the key question is still whether or not it works. And we must hold stem cells, in my view, to a very high standard. If they're not healing fistulas, then they're too expensive. They need to be doing that thing. The other way that we might think about them going forwards, and uh, this is a, a, our um, diagram of the multifactorial pathogenesis of Crohn's disease, which we all have seen. We produced it with the Enigma group. The other idea going forward is to produce some kind of multifactorial treatment, and where stem cells would fit into this is, with, is in the concept of augmentation. Stem cells would be one example of that. Lily Lundby's fat injection might be another. If we're getting a 15% uplift on the ADMIRE study intervention, what if we were doing a lift or an advancement flap and then we added stem cells? Would we be able to augment healing, improve the success rate in that group as well? That's, in my view, where we'll end up. Okay, that was a fast run-through, wasn't it? So we're going to talk about some cases now. So we've got the panel here. Phil's going to try and do the radiology from the corner, and he'll look at the case for me. So you're going to have to point these out. So, um, Elsa, did you want to come and talk about this first case? Yes, or I can... I can <coughs> yeah, you can do it from there, yeah. So, first case, just to get uh, some of the, the key points made from, from Phil and Sue's talk. So, a 32-year-old uh, doctor, who's a colorectal surgical trainee, actually. Uh, in 2001, he had a perianal abscess, age 17, as a young man, and that was incised and drained, and he was given antibiotics. And then over the next ensuing few years, he had recurrent abscesses. No one actually bothered to ask him particularly about any other luminal symptoms or indeed a family history or any other factors. He did have a family history of Crohn's disease, but it took a while for the penny to drop here. So I think the first uh, learning point with this case is to ask the relevant questions in these, in these patients, uh, particularly a family history of IBD. By 2006, he did develop some luminal symptoms, had a scope which showed some, uh, some deep alteration in the rectosigmoid, and he was diagnosed with Crohn's. So that was five years after the, uh, the initial presentation of the perianal abscess. And off he went with treatment, predominantly for the luminal disease with steroids, antibiotics, and azathioprine. Ongoing pain and discharge, and he started on his anti-TNF with infliximab. And I think next, uh, Phil Lung, not Phil T, uh, just to tell us a little bit about the baseline um, uh, MRI scan here. Yeah, so uh, normally we don't look at these scrolling through so quickly, but we felt that you were an expert audience as well, so we thought we'd challenge you a little bit. Um, essentially, you can see it's quite complex. There's at least a horseshoe you can see sort of sitting right at the top. Um, there's this sort of transphenteric component, internal opening there as it flashes by. <laughs> and at least two external openings. Hope you got all that. <laughs> and then the next part of the history was that he started to get more perianal symptoms. His luminal symptoms were pretty good at this time, but he was getting some perianal pain, a bit more discharge, and we thought he was just losing response to infliximab. So what would you do? 
Are you going to check his levels? Remember what Sue's told you about, actually, we need to be dosing these patients fairly high now to get anything resembling uh, some healing. Would you want an MRI? Would you want uh, Phil to be doing an EUA? Would you actually be thinking, actually, we've lost uh, ground now with infliximab and switch him to adalimumab or, indeed, another, another option? So we'll just give you a moment to vote. So, the, well, about a third will do an MRI pelvis. Quite a lot of the gastroenterologists are doing uh, drug levels, unless the surgeons are very keen on therapeutic drug monitoring as well. Just in the interest of time, maybe move to the next slide. Yeah. So, Phil Long, tell us a bit about this scan now. So this is uh, an intercurrent scan that he had. So you remember the previous flash forward of the slide. Um, I'm going to try and convince you that this area is now a larger volume with a similar configuration. So there's a cavity there in the roof of the intraranal fossa on the, on, the, uh, on the left, isn't there? That's what we are thinking as surgeons, that we need to get in and drain in order to and give the patient back their chance at response. Janindra, how would we, how would we do that? You just make a big hole? Um, I've gone off making big holes, Phil. Um, I, I, I would actually use the waft because you have a very good um, MRI to guide you, and um, I find that you can get into those cavities a lot better. And one of the big problems with the big hole is that if you are going blind, you tend to create something that isn't there in the first place. Um, and I think that, that the waft gives you a much better idea of where you're going. And assuming you didn't have a waft, Asha? What would you do in that situation? What about a seaton, though? Yeah, so there probably is a seaton in there. I have to say that I don't recall, but there probably is a seaton in there. But because we use ethibon setons, they're commonly not visible on the scan. You're used to seeing silastic setons, which leave a big black hole in the fistula. So that's why you can't see one. Sue? I think that's an important point, because um, sometimes what we do is remove the seaton after anti-TNF therapy, and the patients get recurrence of abscess and collection if we still have a seaton. So we are quite conscious about the timing of removal of some of these seaton if we want to achieve um, complete radiological healing. For some patients, it could be six to eight weeks. For others, it could be quite long before actually you even think about um, removing it. I think that age-old question of when to remove the seat on goes back to the goals for an individual patient. Mm. So I think it comes back to Phil's initial argument about are we aiming to cure this fistula, completely heal it, or are we aiming to make the patient feel better? This sort of word palliation, which I don't particularly like, but just to make them feel better. So I think the goal of therapy is to do with the time of seat on removal. If you have multiple tracts which you find are not getting any better, or you feel that their discharge is massive, do you, would you consider removing the seat on, or would you plug them along for a bit longer, maybe do a few more EUAs? I think that's, that's a very good point. I mean, I think we've been caught out by some who had really complex and external tracts because you think that you drain one, you remove, and then they have more progressive disease. So I think this is what we really need, an area where some patients in between, we need more data to suggest that perhaps multiple EUAs between with a monitoring of the MRI may actually improve the outcome for some of these more um, complex ones. So... Um, I think we should change tack, or at least go back to your original conversation with this man. Because, you know, Sue's shown a, a picture saying, you know, showing the jigsaw coming together to make a uh, good treatment. This is not good treatment. This is a dreadful condition with, at best, pretty poor outcomes achieved by pretty expensive and toxic drugs, really, in the long, long term. And this man... Is, needs to, he's, he's a colorectal surgeon. He needs, to be a, he's, he needs to be a very highly functioning individual to be a colorectal surgeon. 
Um, and he's a young man who's, who we, know, we don't know about his home life, but you know, he's in a situation of great uncertainty here with abscesses. Abscesses are going to appear in the middle of an on-call weekend. You know, he's taking drugs that he can understand the long-term potential adverse effects of, and he needs to at least revisit the concept of just having surgery, having proctectomy, and getting rid of this as a really viable option uh, that will possibly uh, be one of the choices that he can make to uh, as a compromise, but as a compromise that might make the rest of his life better. So, so I completely agree with that, and I think the conversation about um, earlier surgery, not losing years and years or decades mm -hmm. of young life is really important, and the timing is, 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 is important and early on. I think that the other point we're going to try and make from this case, goes to the next slide, is that when you get to the stage of thinking maybe they're losing response to a biologic drug, don't just think it's the drug that you're losing response to. That's the moment, I think, to get an MRI scan done, just assess it, and then engage the surgical team again. Because actually, loss of response is often just advancement of disease with a new tract or something that potentially uh, you can actually get to, drain, and sort out a bit. But I completely take the point. The only thing is they're not particularly dangerous and toxic drugs. That's the only other comment. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, there is didn't. another comment. So you, they could be swapping this picture for a big hole in the perineum yes. and a yes. non-healing mm. bottom. Yes. Yeah, that is possible. That is possible. But, but, there, but there is no good option. That's the trouble, isn't there? Isn't it? And this is an absolutely prime example of a joint clinic discussion where you can present all of the unpleasant sandwiches and let the patient choose whichever one they think is the least bad. Okay. I think just, just to make one point there, that people are sometimes rather slow to drain the abscesses. Mm. And they, sometimes patients sit for a long time in, in a in a clinic receiving medical treatment and not having their abscess drained, which will then improve their symptoms a lot if it's done in a timely way. I think I agree with that because that's why the monitoring comes in. Some of these patients may have slow brewing abscess and you clearly have no idea. By the time they present, they already are not able to sort of sit. So early on, I think the complexity and the progression on MRI is quite sensitive in that sense. Well, except that quite often they're not abscesses, aren't they? And there's a question appeared on the VVOX thing. You know, you scan people and you see things that actually are not an abscess, they're granulation tissue when you go in. And it's really hard to know sometimes whether you do need to go rushing in and actually find nothing. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think if you've got, a, if you've got an expansion in the volume of a collection like that, it's reasonable to believe, I think, that there is a reduction in drainage and that even if nothing else, that's providing a big inflammatory sump into which all of your medical treatment is pouring. And draining that well, cleaning it out, is probably the right thing to do. Whether you do it with VAFT or um, open is a, is a separate question and probably less important. OK, the second case, then, Elsa, back to you. So a 25-year-old man, he's got known ileoclonic Crohn's. He's on thiopurines and infliximab, so that combination therapy. And he gets a perianal abscess about five years into the diagnosis. That's drained. He has a seton inserted, so exactly the management that Sue and Phil have told you about. And the perianal symptoms get better. Now, he is working. He's able to work, but he's got discomfort and discharge. And he's wanting to get on with life a bit. Thank goodness this one is a little bit slower. Um, <laughs> uh, you can, again, see this is an axial uh, MRI. The uh, fistula that you're looking for is very low volume, it's just here, just sitting through there. It looks around mid-canal, comes, to, crosses through the fistula, through the external sphincter, and then just tracks down with an external opening here. 
this is a nice, low-volume, calm-looking fistula. We're going to ask everyone in a minute what <coughs> they would offer this patient, if anything. Um, so, uh, but first of all, you. Please uh, let us know. What do you think? What would you offer this patient with good medical control who's got a single straight transphincteric fistula anteriorly that looks low volume and well controlled? Okay, that's very interesting. Janindra, what would you offer this patient? Um, I'd actually still go down the phylac valve route, actually, because the, you've got a single tract, you don't, you don't have multiple branching, and you have a reasonable chance 50% is a reasonable chance for someone uh, of actually healing it after one or two treatments. And I would close the internal opening. Carolyn? Um, I would get you in to do a phylac. Okay. Uh, and continue with medical treatment. Yeah. Yes. Um, uh, Sue and Asha? No, absolutely. I think they're not mutually exclusive. So like Carolyn's sort of point, essentially that's what you want to do and longer term to sort of continue. Okay. And this is an argument for continuing medical treatment, taking the seat on out and see if it will heal. Okay, then Sue, Sue, other Sue, Sue Clark. I think I'd ask you. I mean, you know, you, uh, I, I would be wondering about a lift actually. If he's medical, yep. if he's medical, uh, uh, if he's medically well controlled, you don't lose anything by doing a lift. This might be the opportunity to do it. So I would actually perhaps think about that. Yeah, well, I agree. So I, th I think the argument here is that uh, a third of people have taken the view that there is an opportunity to try and close this fistula. And I think we should all be trying to close this fistula. This is, this is as good as it's ever going to get in terms of the likelihood of a fistula healing in response to a surgical operation. Now, the patient might take the view that they don't want to open that can of worms. And that's a very reasonable attitude to take. And then you'd stick with the seat on and so on. But if the patient's up for it, this is the moment when I would intervene and offer them a, a reparative procedure. Okay. That's it for our cases. Thanks very much, Phil. <coughs> That's it for our Crohn's cases. So we're going to talk even faster about non-Crohn's anal fistula, and then Carolyn's going to talk to us about rectovaginal fistula. With such a short amount of time, it's difficult to know what to talk about with anal fistula. So I, what I'm really going to do is give a very, very brief overview and then talk about one of the issues that we're going to address with the live operating later on. These, I think, are the kind of interesting bits. If I'm talking to a trainee, these are the things I'll say, think about. Um, your complete assessment, obviously entirely crucial. That question of aligning the patient's goals with the treatment that you offer is really important. What's our intent here? Is it palliation or is it to cure the fistula, to try and get it to close? And the first question to always ask is whether or not you can lay open the fistula. The answer may be no, that's fine, but we should always be asking it because it's the best way to get the patient's fistula to heal if we can, as you all know. And if we are going to undertake a sphincter-preserving procedure, we might well need to rationalise the fistula so that it is suitable for one of those sphincter-preserving procedures, more about which just now. I'm not going to talk about clinical assessment at all. Um, and you all know from hearing Prof Phillips stand here much more eloquently than me explaining to you why endoanal ultrasound is rubbish and MRI is better. The truth, of course, is that either of them is pretty good when combined with an EUA, but there are clear advantages to MRI, in my view, even when they are appearing at high speed as we're showing them to you today. Um, and fistulotomy, who can we lay open? Well, you will all have a sense of who you are willing to lay open. And I don't want to try and change that, actually. Um, but it is all about the patient, the fistula, and their consent. And I'm seeing the same patients as Robin Phillips did, but I'm not doing the same amount of fistulotomy. And I wonder if that's related to how I'm consenting these patients and if I'm more reticent about it than he was. And as a result, my patients are picking that up and avoiding fistulotomy. I don't know. I still do some high fistulotomy, but not as much as he did. Anyway, 
I'm much more interested in talking to you about complexity and rationalisation. <coughs> there are lots of different types of complexity. This is one of Jordan's beautiful pictures, and you can see abscesses here, but imagine these attract. It's the same principle. What are you going to do to produce that nice, straight, transphincteric fistula that you need to do your lift or whatever you're going to do? Well, with complexity out in the isoanal fossa, it's fairly straightforward. You can make a big hole, and that will be safe, and it will eventually heal. The patient won't send you a Christmas card in the interim, but they will if you close their fistula in the end. And then with these internal um, uh, tracts, that's a slightly more difficult question, particularly if it's down in the sphincter complex, because an internal layopen incurs some risk of continence impairment because you're dividing some of the internal sphincter. It may not be that big a deal, and that's fine. But it does make us wonder if there's a better way. So here's an example of uh, a suprasphincteric bit of horseshoeing above the sphincter complex, which I've laid open internally, and of course it vanishes, and that's a very straightforward thing um, to do in terms of risk. It can be quite challenging to do, of course, as you will know. And here's that same patient. There's that suprasphincteric area of sepsis, which has vanished on the second time, just through internal layopen. So you can get a nice result with those things. But what about trying to avoid making the big holes, like Janindra said earlier, and avoiding damaging the internal sphincter by trying to undertake this rationalisation through a minimally invasive technique? And that's the DVAF, Delta VAF, the changing <coughs> the fistula, tra uh, uh, fistula tract VAF. And I've been very excited about this over the last year or two, but my excitement is waning, and I think it is not as effective as it hopefully would once have been. Professor Phillips is sitting at home with a cigar laughing, and probably <laughs> whiskey. It's early, isn't it? But probably. So uh, this is when it is successful, and it is occasionally successful, and I'm going to show it to you today. I'm going to show you the operation and tell you it's going to be successful. Who knows if it will be? Here is a patient with uh, two external openings 100 miles away from his um, anus. Uh, whenever I sh when I showed this photo, my registrar came to me after the talk and said, I'm never sharing a packet of crisps with you again. It's <laughs> <laughs> a reasonable criticism. <laughs> anyway, there is a fistula here. Uh, there is another fistula here. So there it is. There's the long transphincteric tract that goes into the back of the anus. There is the uh, external sphincter, the outer edge of the external sphincter. And that's what I'm going to have to lay open if I'm going to get that to heal. And that's what I really don't want to do, right? That's going to leave a massive, miserable wound. So instead, I will make an incision here, disconnect these two parts of the tract, put a seat on in, and then I can deal with that down the line however I wish. And then I'm going to apply VAFT to this to try and get it to heal. And I actually laid that bit open because it really wasn't that long. And this is what the guy looks like afterwards. There's his lay-open wound. That's where his lay-open wound would have been. And that's all healed, which is nice. Like everyone, I'm showing you my best picture. Most of the time when I do this, it doesn't work. But just occasionally it does. And that saved this guy three months off work. So I think it's worth a try. Anyway, there is a lot of variety of what to do afterwards in terms of the sphincter-preserving procedure. They all demand, demand that specific fistula morphology that I was mentioning, and so often the fistulas we have are unsuitable for one of these techniques for one reason or another. And the other issue we have to talk about with the sphincter-preserving procedures is how rarely they actually work. Probably about a 50% success rate is a reasonable thing to say. Not all of the sphincter-preserving procedures are truly sphincter-preserving. We must remember that when we're counselling the patients. And this is the really big issue this is the fistula plug when it first came out, and this is it when I was doing my research, and that's what happens to the success rate. We all remember that from glue. We saw it with plugs. The question about Vaft and Phylac for me is where they are on this timeline. We will see.
Right, that's enough for me. Oh, don't forget the loose <coughs> seat on. If the patient doesn't want to lay open and they don't want all the faff of sphincter preserving procedures, a comfortable loose <coughs> seat on will keep the patient happy and out of your clinic. And it's always, always a valuable thing to do. What is a comfortable loose seat on? Well, that question remains wide open. This is our view. Um, but don't forget about a comfortable loose seat on as a permanent palliative technique. Okay, Carolyn. <coughs> 